Morning, church. And welcome to Clayton Community. Glad you're here. I am Pastor Craig. It's been my privilege to preach God's Word here for, in total, the last 20 years about, uh, as the lead pastor for the last 10 years. And it just, uh, I, I enjoy the process of studying God's Word. I enjoy being in fellowship with God's people and just being tasked with the responsibility of, of continuing just to proclaim the truth of God's Word. And I hope that this morning God's Word captivates you, that the Holy Spirit captivates you. You know, because in this world, people really try and captivate your attention using all sorts of different methods. You know, the, uh, the mainstream media really tries to captivate your attention through projecting uh, fear and trouble. You know, and so we find ourselves constantly glued to our phones and trying to pay attention to what the latest thing that is happening. We're, we're just captivated by all the things that are happening. But the thing I love about fellowship on Sunday is that at least for this hour, two hours that we come here together, the goal is that we'd be captivated by Christ. So we'd be captivated by His Word, His truth, His narrative, His ideas. And that hopefully in being captivated that way um, throughout the rest of the week, we can be reminded to continue to pursue Him and to continue to live for Him in all that we do. And so that's our aim here at Clayton Community Church. That's our aim this morning. And we are a Bible-believing church, which means we let the Bible speak for itself. And we simply do our best to follow it to the best of our ability. And we are going through the Corinthian letters, which Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. There are two known letters, which we have in our Bibles. And we are in the first letter in chapter 7. And uh, I, I can't tell if there are people missing because Omicron is making its, its rounds through this area, which I, I think it is. A lot of people I know have gotten what they said or is like the common cold. And... Um, they went and got tested, and it turns out they tested positive for COVID. I know me and my family last week, we had the sniffles and we're sick and nothing major at all. Um, I'm talking to some of you who are just getting over something as well. But I can't tell if it's people are gone because of sickness or because of the content from last week. <laughs> because we are right in the middle of the marriage and human sexuality passages and uh, we, we just went for it last week. We just laid it all out on the line and talked about all that the Bible has to say about sex, which uh, is God created sex to be a very good thing within the context of marriage. And so as a church, we should not shy away from talking about all that the Bible has to say, plus maybe a little bit more. But as Paul continues, he's going to keep going on this topic of, of marriage and human sexuality. But uh, in this section of Scripture, he starts talking about divorce and essentially rules for divorce. Because it's hard not to talk about marriage without talking about divorce. In fact, this last Friday, I met with a young couple, a young lady who used to attend my youth group. Sorry, way could you say that? way back in the day. Somebody needs to remind me next week because that's happened three weeks in a row now. Um, I was just meeting with a young couple, a young lady who was in 
uh, my youth group back when I was a youth pastor. And she had gone off and discovered the world and, um, and found a, a boy, found a man. And she wanted to get married, and so she gave me a call. And so I, I had him come here. And, and my standard is I do three counseling sessions with the young couple. And the first se session, I like to talk about all that the Bible says about marriage, which is nice because it was real fresh in my mind. So we, we talked about marriage. And, and then I also like to give them a marriage survey, which talks about different personality types and plans and, and things like that. It's basically a survey where you just fill out. Many of you have done that. And because the next week, the next session, I like to talk about all that the Bible says about divorce. Because I think it's equally important going into marriage to understand what God's Word says about marriage as it is what His Word says about divorce. Because you need to go into marriage understanding that it's not as, as rainbows and butterflies and easy as the movies try and make it out to be. You know, life together, marriage together can be very difficult. And there's often unforeseen things that, that happen throughout your relationship. And so going into it, it's important that we know God's standard of divorce as well. Because we need to know wh what is God's attitude towards divorce. And is there a certain time within our marriage where divorce might be the right course of action? And so the Bible talks about all these things, God's attitude and rules for divorce. But God also leaves a little wiggle room too as well for exceptions to be made uh, on, on a case-by-case -case basis depending on how that council is going with the church. And we're going to find that here with Paul that he, he cites and he quotes what the Word of God itself says, but he also gives also personal pastoral advice to married couples as well. And so I think this is a, a much needed topic we need to talk about. I recognize that, that some of you here this morning may have experienced a divorce at some point in your life, maybe even multiple divorces, uh, perhaps even in this moment. You are working through a difficult uh, relationship or divorce situation. And so uh, I, I know that God's word will bring clarity to your life to your situation, to your relationships. I know it will be healing. I know it will be informative and helpful. And so I just want to invite you for this next uh, 40 to 50 minutes just to really allow the Word of God to guide and direct your hearts and your minds and to inform your decisions in your life. Let's pray and we'll get into God's Word. Father, you are the truth teller in this world full of liars and cheats and thieves. God, it's good to return to the solid foundation of our faith, which is your word. Your word is absolute, undiluted truth. And so we love to read your word. We love to proclaim your word. Father, help us not just to hear and understand and think about your word, Lord, but to put it into serious practice to take your word seriously, to really have faith that when your word says it, it's true and it's what's best for us. So help us, Lord, to no longer live by the ways of the world or to live by even, even what's right in our own mind. But God, allow us to live by what's right according to your scripture and through the Holy Spirit. 
So guide us, Lord, by your truth. Your word is truth. We love you. We do thank you for all the many gifts, Lord. We thank you for your reconciliation that you give us through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for mending the divorce that happened between you and mankind when we sinned against you. And thank you for your constant forgiveness, your patience with us, your grace, your love. Help us, Lord, to exercise the same love with our spouse, with our friends, with our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll be starting in verse 10. The Word of God says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, he should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? A lot of interesting things going on in here. Um, but let's start with, I wanted to address kind of the, the thing that pops out to me when I read this that is uncommon throughout the rest of Scripture is Paul's statement before he makes a statement where he says, not I, but the Lord, or also where he says, I, not the Lord. Now, remember last week when we covered Paul's statement where he sa says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. And that had to do with the conjugal rights within marriage that don't deprive your, your wife or your husband from, from sex because after all, God has preserved and made sex to be uh, fleshed out within the confines of marriage. So therefore, if, if that's their only outlet, don't deprive them of sex. You're the only one, right? And so, but after saying this, Paul says, I say this as a concession and not a command. And his statement, ultimately, the reason for that is he's saying this is not meant to be the 11th commandment, that you should give your spouse their conjugal rights. It's not the 11th commandment, but rather this is a useful and helpful pastoral uh, instruction for married couples. Because ultimately, by depriving your spouse of sex within marriage, you're not doing them or your marriage any favors. So ultimately, it, it is good Christian advice given by a man who is led by God, who knows the word, and who really cares about um, the health of your marriage. And as a pastor myself, who's counseled with many people, married couples, single people, um, I can tell you that this is great advice that a lot of times, a lot of issues that come up within marriage have to do with sex, either the frequency or the type that, that's happening. 
And so a lot of con contention can come uh, from that topic. And so I can tell you that it is indeed good advice. However, if a spouse came to me and said, you know, we're, I, I feel like we live in a, in a sexless marriage and, and we, we don't have sex very, as often as I would like to and, and they're often turning me down or rejecting me, you know, I'm too tired or I don't feel very good or I'm just not in the mood and, and it's really disheartening to me. If they came to me with that, I would not count that as a sin per se. It's not something where I would, I would then put that other spouse through church discipline. But as a pastor, as a counselor, I would strongly urge that individual to reconsider their method and to reconsider um, giving that partner what they desire in that way. So, so you see that it is a, it's a strong counsel, but it's not the Ten Commandments, if you know what I mean. So Paul kind of does the same thing here. He continues making this distinction that this is God, God's exact word. This is Ten Commandment level type authority. And then he also makes the distinction that this is my pastoral advice. Now, both are equally God-breathed. But one, again, bears the weight of authority of the Ten Commandments. The other bears the authority of a strong suggestion from a pastoral authority figure. Okay? And so hopefully that'll make a little more sense when we walk through this, the distinction between the two. So he begins first with the biblical authority, God's authority, not I but the Lord. And by authority of the word of God, Paul asserts that the wife should not separate from her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, what's the reason for using the two different words there, separate and divorce? Well, in our English, we can't really capture the exact essence of these Greek words that are being used. But the first word, separate, is korizo. And this is a different Greek word than what Paul uses when he says that husbands should not divorce their wives. The word translated for divorce is aphiemi. And both of these Greek words do have similar types of meanings and scholars have even debated about whether this is just Paul using uh, wordplay or stylistic language. And that could be possible because they do have similar meaning, ultimately meaning to, to, to separate or, or to end or to send away, um, to divorce, to separate. But I think it also has to do with Jewish Orthodox customs when it comes to divorce. So when we look back, one of the very first verses in Scripture which addresses divorce is Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. And I have that text up on the screen. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, uh, some translations will say because he's annoyed by her. And this text has caused much confusion amongst Bible scholars because we don't really know exactly what that means. 
If that simply means that he's found her to be uh, indecent, maybe he married her and found out she was with child, but he knows it's not his. Maybe she lied about some kind of venereal disease and they got married and he finds out about it and he says, well, you know, you, you didn't disclose this to me. You were lying to me. And, and on that basis, uh, some people even say that just because, you know, she, she cooked the tuna casserole the wrong way, you, you, you could divorce. Um, so we don't really know exactly the original intent of what it means that uh, he, he found some indecency in her. But we do know what the rest says. It says, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her, apparently she really just can't cook or something because, you know, both, both these men are just, no, oh, I can't stand her. Um, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. Okay, so this is one of the earliest examples or written scripture that has to do with divorce. Now remember, of course, this is uh, under Levitical law. This was for the Israelites who were God's chosen people, uh, who lived primarily under the theocracy of, of God's law, God's word. Many of the uh, uh, theocratic laws or the um, traditional laws that they held were fulfilled through Christ. The moral laws, of course, remain for all time. But when it comes to marriage and divorce, it seems like the scriptures are pretty consistent with much of what this has to say. And to give you a quick background about the way that the Jewish communities understood this, these rules for divorce from Deuteronomy, when we look at, um, for example, when it says, when they found some indecency in her. Now, if, if the husband was a compassionate man, he would give her a certificate of divorce, which they referred to as a get, a G-E-T. So, and what this get would do would give the woman legal permission under, um, under uh, Israel law to remarry. So essentially, the husband held all the unilateral authority when it came to marriage and divorce. And if the husband, you know, decided that they needed to divorce, again, if he was a compassionate man, he would give her what's called a get, which would allow her to then remarry within those communities. But if he didn't, then uh, it would be very difficult for her to marry within those communities. Now, think about in Matthew 1.19... Joseph and Mary. So what happened in that story? So Mary was a virgin. And she was about to be married to Joseph. They were going through that process. But then she was found to be with child. And we know the Immaculate Conception, that, that God um, had, had caused her to be pregnant with the Son of God, with Jesus Christ. But when she came to her husband and she said, I, I am with child he immediately thought foul play. He immediately thought, you've been pregnant this whole time. You, you tricked me. You're pregnant with an, another man's child. And, and so he, he really wrestled with what to do. And the scripture says that 
her husband Joseph being a just man, he was a good man, and unwilling to put her to shame. So even though he thought that she might have another man's child, he still wanted to, to guard her dignity and protect. He loved her. He truly loved her and wanted to protect her. And so it says he resolved to divorce her quietly. And if this follows Jewish custom, what that means is that he would have given her a get so that she could essentially get out of the marriage and have the ability to marry whoever's child this belongs to or whatever. But if he does, if he were to get all angry, just fly off the handle and say, you whore, I'm not giving you anything. Get out of my house. I don't care what you do. I'm not giving you this get. And you're just on your own. If he were to do that to her, she truly would be ultimately on her own. Because in order to remarry within Jewish culture, you would have to supply those papers, that get, for it to be something that's ordained and approved within the community. Now, this doesn't mean that she couldn't remarry anywhere else. Maybe she could find another person who, um, who had an unfavorable separation or divorce, or she could go to a different town and, and pretend that she was never married before. I mean, this is the age before cell phones and internet where people could actually get away with stuff like that. But um, oftentimes the men who refused to give the woman a get when she her away, they would also be shunned by the community because they were seen as a heart, heartless man, a heartless man who doesn't really have compassion or care. And so uh, typically what would happen is that the get would be supplied and the woman would go on her way and the husband um, would go on his way. Now, I believe this is what Paul is referring to when he's talking about the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So there were also cases where the husband would have been really harsh. Maybe he was committing adultery and the woman could ultimately just, just leave. I mean, she didn't have the authority to, to give herself a get or to give her husband a get, that, that role was reserved for the husband. But she could just leave. And so Paul's reference here is that if she does leave, then she should just remain unmarried. You know, as unfortunate, and again, it's hard for us to read into their situation, their culture, with our 21st century Western mindset. But in that case... She could leave, escape that bad situation, but the Bible says she should remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Because otherwise it would be viewed as an unclean remarriage if she were to remarry without that get. Okay, so that's a little bit of historical, cultural uh, information that I think is important for us to, to start wrapping our minds around the idea of marriage and divorce because it's important. So, then what is God's attitude towards divorce? Because we find it interesting that the marriage is a really good thing. But even Paul says, you know, if you could be as I am and, and not married, I, I, would, I would hope that for you. And he later says in, in Corinthians that, that those who marry will have trouble in this life. 
Any married couples, can you agree with that statement? That if you marry, you will have tr like extra trouble? Because you're no longer just living for yourself. You're living for another human being as well. And then, oh boy, when you guys come together and then you start popping out babies, the trouble just multiplies, doesn't it? Okay, so I mean, Paul, the scripture is absolutely right that those who marry will face trouble in this life. And some of you know it more than any of us. Maybe you had a, a horrible relationship. You married someone, they were, they were very sweet, very handsome, very beautiful, but then they turned out to be a monster. And you had no idea. And you, you lived under that or with that for years, maybe even decades. And so, marriage is, is not heaven. Marriage, we know, is the closest relationship we can find or the closest example of Christ's love for the church. Us, of course, being the church because we constantly fail and God is constantly demonstrating grace and forgiveness. I mean, Christ wears the pants, but he's also the servant husband as well. And he loves and he forgives. Whenever there's an argument, it's always from our end. We're arguing with him about, why are you doing things this way? We're sinning against him. He doesn't sin against us. And so he's always the one who has to take that step of reconciliation in our relationship between the church and Christ. Unfortunately, within marriage, oftentimes the husband is supposed to take on the Christ role, but husbands fall way short way short of Christ's example. And even when we try our hardest, we still, we still fail. Oftentimes, we're not living sacrificially, uh, living as servant husbands, as servant leaders within our family. We're not leading our families uh, to Christ, having family devotions, instigating family devotions, instigating time of, of prayer, admitting our faults, laying down our, our pride, keeping control of our temperament. We fall way short of Christ in that regard. And most honest women will admit the same thing, that they fall short as well. But even though marriage is a good thing, it does have many issues, and sometimes divorce happens. And the Bible does give exception for divorce. But before we address the particulars in that, I wanted to take a look at God's general attitude towards divorce, because I think it's important to begin there. Let me take a drink real quick. Now, God's attitude towards divorce, uh, I'm going to label this as not I, but the Lord, because the Bible is very clear about how God feels about divorce. First, very explicitly, the Bible says that God hates divorce. Does he, is he indifferent about it? it, it, does, it does he think it's, oh, it's not that great? No, he hates divorce. If you ever wonder how he feels, whether it turns out to be a, a biblically justified reason for divorce or not, ultimately, when divorce happens, God hates it. It, it, uh, it affects him emotionally in a negative way. He doesn't like it. Malachi 2.16, according to the NASB, 
says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. That's pretty straightforward. I hate divorce. Now, if this simple statement does not convince you, consider what Jesus Christ himself said in Matthew 19, 5 through 6. It says, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. There he's referring to Genesis 2, 24. Very foundational stuff. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So we have to believe that when two people, a man and a woman, come before God and they make a covenant pact together to be committed to each other for life, this act is more than just saying something, making a promise or a commitment. But there is a supernatural thing that happens where God brings two people together. God makes two people one. And so what therefore God joins together, let not man separate it. And so of course, if God is bringing it together, if he is doing that work in that relationship, of course he's going to hate it when, when they let man separate it, whether it's their own ego their own pride, or somebody else who wedges in between the two. God just hates that. He loves it when people can come together and be in harmony and be in unity together. He loves it in the church. He loves it in marriage relationships. He loves it between parents and children. God loves unity and peace and reconciliation and forgiveness. All these things God loves. And when you, when you consider throughout the Bible the reasons for marriage, God made marriage for companionship and help. What did he say in Genesis? It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. God doesn't want you just to be alone with your dogs and your cats and your gerbils and your animals and your horses. You know, as, as great as those pets might be, but God knows that, that we need people other people made in the image and after likeness of God to do this life with. And as, as many of us love our animals, I know we love our little Yorkshire Terrier, Gizmo. He just brings our family so much joy. And you know, there are some days where I'm being a real jerk and, and my wife clearly loves the dog more than me in that moment. Or vice versa. You, you, had a, you had a really bad day at work and you come home and the dog is just like jumping all over you and just licking you and, you know, and just so happy to see you. You know, not everybody at home is happy to see you. You got kids playing video games, you know. You got, got the wife doing laundry. Hey, how you doing? And, but the dog is so excited to see you. And I can see why they say dogs are a man's best friend because they're just that constant, loyal happy to see you, companion. And they like to go out and do manly stuff with you too. But really, even dogs cannot compare. Your favorite animal cannot compare to that relationship that you have with another human being, especially in a marriage relationship with a human being of the opposite sex. Especially because of the fact that we're so different. And it shouldn't by all intents and purposes, it shouldn't work because we're so different in a lot of ways. Physically, we're different, which, you know, in, in the sex department, that works out really well. Um, psychologically, 
we're different. That's where a lot of the clashes happen. Emotionally, we're very different. And that's where a lot of the differences happen. And that's where a lot of the tension happens. But really, it is for our good. God made us to, to complement each other. Because men are lacking. And that's why God created woman. And also, women are lacking. And that's the way that God designed it. Because we can't have babies. Women can. Men come from women. But men also help produce man. So... We need each other. We complement each other. And it goes so much more than just reproduction. It's like men, we, we need our wives to diffuse us sometimes, don't we? Don't we? And you might think that, well, it's my wife that agitates me. But no, really, if you have a loving wife, your wife knows how to make you mad, but she also knows how to bring you down. My wife has learned over years of marriage that the best way to diffuse me is just to come up and to give me a hug. It's like when, when I'm in anger mode, when I'm in DEFCON 5, if my wife comes up and just ever so sweetly and gently gives me a hug, I can't be bad at that. I, I can't start lashing out if, if she is just holding on to me so tenderly. I, I can't do it. I, I melt. I, I, admit, I admit this to you. And maybe even in a, in a church... Uh, situation. If me and Jim, you know, if we're, if we're coming to fisticuffs gym and we're, we're debating about, you know, are we going to change the color of the carpet or not? Ah, and, we're, and we're kind of fighting. If, if you just kind of, <laughs> come here, brother. You're going to win that argument. I guarantee you. I think I've gone a little too off track, but... God made marriage for companionship and help. And we need that. God also made marriage for sex and procreation. We talked about that last week. I don't need to elaborate. He also made marriage to reflect Christ in the church. And when we divorce, it tarnishes, it corrupts all those intentions. The, the intention for companionship and help, we turn into division and anger, and fighting, sex and procreation, we, we turn away from that, and we, we give it to someone else, most likely. And then we also just tarnish this idea of Christ in the church, because Christ is the perfect bridegroom. He is always making sacrifice. He is always fighting for our marriage, the marriage of the church. And he always wins when it comes to the church. He wins. He wins us back. He calls us back. And so God hates it when two people cannot work it out. And God doesn't want you to go through the nightmare of divorce. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to in that office who are still going through the nightmare of divorce. They were divorced years ago, but they're still going through the nightmare of divorce. We have uh, friends who have been going on uh, like two or three years of litigation and, and court, court appearances and, and a fight over the kids and, and just nasty, nasty stuff. And these are supposed to be Christian people. They are Christ-professing 
people, but yet they've gone through three years of, in the court. And their, their kids are struggling. All their money, they're giving all their money to these lawyers. It's just painful, painful stuff. And you know what? God would want to spare you and your family from that. So he hates it on multiple, for, mul for multiple reasons. The second thing is, divorce always involves hardened hearts. So when Jesus made his statement about the foundational components of marriage, the Pharisees then tried to trap him because divorce was, a, um, was made a controversial topic. And so the Pharisees, they knew, well, let's see how Jesus is going to handle this when we challenge him on divorce. Let's see what he has to say. Let's hit him with this zinger. And so they tried to trap him in Matthew 19, 7 through 8, when they said, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? What are you going to do with that, Jesus? And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Divorce was never a part of God's design and program for mankind. It's a result of the fall. And divorce is ultimately the result of a hardened heart, or ultimately a heart that says, I give up on you. I have no more love in my heart for you to continue trying. I don't care what happens to you, just so long as I don't have to be a part of it. I don't love you anymore. In any way, romantically or with God's love. I just, I don't care about you. You drive me crazy away from me. Ultimately, and some might view that as being an extreme. I, I've talked to people who said, well, actually, you know, we, we had a very peaceful divorce and it was great and we're, we're better off for it. And, you know, but the fact that, that you can't continue to get along with someone that at one time you looked at and you thought, this is the person I want to spend the rest of my life with. I'm willing to spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on a wedding ceremony, planning a vacation for us and planning a future home. I'm willing to do, dream all these things because I, if you were able to love somebody at one time, it's hard to believe that you can't work through anything. But what happens is Again, our pride, our ego, our selfishness, I deserve better. And I work with someone who I think might give me what I want, something better. So I just have to leave this one, go to that one. And that might be the answer to my, my problem. And so that hardness of heart to just give up and to give in your sinful desires. So as Jesus says, divorce is allowed, but the point that needs to be understood is that divorce happens with hardness of heart, either from both couples or one person. Just giving up. And also the reason why God hates divorce is because God loves grace. He loves forgiveness. He loves reconciliation. I mean, this was His work on the cross. For us, he did this. He is a proponent of these things. He loves it when a married couple, you know, fight. They're fighting over something. They go to their separate corners. You know, they kind of pray about it. They talk about it. 
And suddenly they, their heart softens. And they recognize, you know, it is my fault. I, I need to go and to admit and apologize, ask forgiveness. And God loves that. God loves it when two people can work out their problems. He loves it when someone can forgive the other for a wrong that they do. And it could be anything. It would be a, a white lie. It can be a, something, you know, very egregious. But either way, God loves it when people love each other so much that they're willing to forgive, truly forgive, never bring up again, but just forgive and move on. God loves that. And then he loves it when a couple is united together, working together towards a common goal. And ultimately, the common goal of serving and worshiping Him. Power couples are people who are serving and worshiping the Lord together. Again, there's going to be fights, there's going to be trouble along the way, but if, if you're working together towards a common goal, and you're in it till the end together, God loves that, and you're going to do amazing things together. I love in, in this church, there's, there's multiple power couples in this church who have gone through many different things, but at the end of the day, it's like they're, they're together. The D word is not an option. We're in this together. And we've gone through it all. I've had to forgive you for that crazy thing. You forgive me for my constant thing. And, and we're, we're doing this together till the end. That's ultimately God's ideal. That's what God wants. So that's God's attitude towards marriage, towards marriage and divorce. But... When a time comes when hearts are hard and when people just give up or cannot proceed, when divorce is permissible, um, Paul says this is a not I but the Lord situation. There are two explicit exceptions when it comes to divorce. Number one, adultery. Now it just says idolatry is deeply offensive to God, which means idolatry is when you give something else what is due to God. So your love, your affection, your attention, your worship, your praise, all those things are due to God. And when you give those things to something or someone else more than you give it to God, that is ultimately idolatry. So just as idolatry is an offense towards God, adultery in the same way is an offense towards your spouse. Because you're giving something away that belongs to someone else exclusively. When you marry, that's what you sign up for. You say that all that I am, all of me, my mind, my heart, my soul, my body, it belongs to you alone. It's yours. I am yours and I will not give it away to another person. Sexually at all to another person. Mentally, I mean, people talk about how you, you can commit, um, um, you can cheat on your spouse emotionally or mentally. You know, I'm, I'm not sure how you quantify that. But ultimately, you give your heart, your mind, your soul, your attention to your spouse above all else. And so, when a person commits adultery, it is a violation of that covenant. Just as when somebody commits idolatry, it's a violation of our relationship with God. And that's why throughout the Old Testament, he refers to idolatry as adultery. He calls Israel, you adulterous nation. 
you're giving yourselves away to foreign gods. When, when I, have, I have purchased you, I have, I have, I have made you my own, I have, I have established you. Look at all the things I have, I have done for you in your life and you turn away. Matthew 19.9, Jesus continues, he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. And so, if that should happen within your marriage, it is justifiable. That person has hardened their heart against you by committing adultery. It would be justifiable for you to file for divorce at that point. If you just cannot stand if you cannot deal with living with that individual. However, the Bible also would encourage you not to give up, even with adultery. If you think of Hosea in the Old Testament, you know, God had Hosea marry essentially a prostitute. And part of the reason for that is because God wanted Hosea to experience what it was like to have his heart broken and severed in the most deep possible way. And that's through adultery. And God said, you will not divorce your wife, though she be a harlot. Just as I, the God of Israel, did not divorce Israel. But rather, I continued to love Israel I forgave Israel, and yeah, I mean, God punished Israel for sure. But ultimately, as the bridegroom, he was faithful, even when Israel was faithless. And so, it's an honorable and commendable thing if your spouse should stray, if they are truly repentant, if they are apologetic, if they are demonstrating their trustworthiness from then on, doing whatever it takes for you to forgive your spouse and to love them and to be reconciled even through adultery is a very commendable thing. It's a godly thing. That's what God would do. But also at the end of the day, sometimes that sin can be so egregious. A person can cannot be repentant of it at all, but rather can make it a habit. Every time they go out of town, they're cheating on you and you find out that they don't really care that they don't really care. It doesn't bother them. They plan on doing it again. If that's the heart and attitude, they're demonstrating the heart and attitude of an unbeliever. And therefore, on two accounts, you would have the right to leave them. If you came into my office and that was your story, then I would say you have my full blessing to divorce your spouse, if that's truly the case. The other case is death. Now, some people might say, well, divorce is not a word I would use when I'm a widow or a widower. But the biblical use of the word, ultimately, divorce fundamentally means legal separation or a departure. Uh, in fact, the word can also literally mean death. Sometimes the word for divorce is also used of death. And so, in that way... Obviously, upon death, there is that separation, that legal separation that takes place in God's eyes. You are not bound to go the rest of your life without ever having another relationship or um, never remarrying because 
Christ says, God says, that death ultimately um, gives you that permission. Romans 7, 1 through 3 says, The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So the scripture is very clear. Adultery, death, on those two bases, a person can divorce and also remarry unless they are the offender. If they are the one who is offended or the one who is the widow, then they should be completely justified and completely free to, to remarry. Now, um, there are some, there are some who go through adultery, end up divorcing, and ultimately have no desire to remarry. There's also those who are widows or widowers, especially those who are older in age, who've been married for, you know, 50 plus years, and they just really have no desire to, to be in, in another relationship. There are those who are in that situation, and that's perfectly, that's perfectly good as well. We, we should not pressure widows or widowers or, or those who are divorced to remarry right away. There should be no pressure there at all. In fact, I, I often think, I mean, my wife is my high school sweetheart, and I have gone all in on her. I have put all my eggs in her basket. Everything that I have, I have given to her completely. And it's tiring, and it's exhausting, and I feel spent completely on her. And I'm happy for it. But I don't think I could ever do that again with anybody else. Now I say that, and I talk to other men or people who have said that before and who became widow, widowers and things like that. And somewhere down the line, you know, there, there's a relationship that sparks up. Um, but that's just my attitude now, is just that, why would I want to hit the reset button on that? I, I mean, all these years that you and I have spent building our relationship, getting to know each other, learning each other's idiosyncrasies, learning how to navigate the waters during difficult times, all the trips and the things that we've been on together, the children that we've had. I just don't see why I'd ever want to hit the reset button. But, that, but that's just me. Everybody is different. Okay. This last section here, thank you for bearing with me. This is an important topic, and I want to make sure that we all leave here understanding what the Word of God says. So Paul then shifts to his practical pastoral exceptions. And this is where he says, I, not the Lord. So this is Paul's practical pastoral counsel concerning divorce. Now, um, it's clear that the Corinthian church, they came to him with this question. Well, okay, so you're saying this about, about marriage and about, about divorce, but if, if I'm a believer, should I stay with my unbelieving spouse? I mean, you, you've been preaching to us, Paul, that do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever, but here I'm, I'm already yoked to an unbeliever. So does that mean I need to divorce them? Uh, what do I need to do? So, in that, Paul answers this way. He says, first of all, if you're... If you become a born-again believer and your spouse is not a born-again believer and they're willing to put up with you 
being a new, zealous, born again, living for Jesus, going to church on Sundays, listening to Christian radio, forsaking sinful pleasures that you once did before, studying the Bible at home, uh, praying throughout the day, evangelizing maybe even to them. Um, If they're willing to put up with that, don't divorce them. Because Paul says that the believing spouse will make their unbelieving spouse holy. Now that does not mean justified and saved. That means set apart. It means potentially sanctified into believing. And it was very common, especially in Paul's time, where if one person, like if if the husband was born again, then shortly after the entire household would be baptized together. It says this oftentimes in Christ, in his ministry. Someone would, a husband would be saved, he'd go back to his home, he'd share the good news, and then the whole family would be baptized and they'd all believe. And I've found that to be true in general even today. That if one partner is saved and they start truly living for Christ, it's impossible for the spouse not to see the change. Not to see all the different ways that they are changing. And in good ways, too. Good, pleasing ways. In, in a lot of cases. But then there are cases where the spouse will be like, I just can't stand that Christian music anymore. You used to go out to the bar with me. We used to sing karaoke and just get totally drunk together and just have wild nights. And, and now you're not doing that anymore. Um, we used to, you know, just sit in the basement and smoke pot all evening. You don't want to do that anymore. Uh, you know, we used to just make, make fun of people. And, and, but, but now you're just trying to be kind to people. And now you're giving our money away to that church. Come on, honey. Uh, you know, we need to save that money. You're giving up our Sundays. Sunday's football day. We used to get up and we used to make all this food and have a great time together and just lounge and watch football. Now you want to dress to the nines and, and go to church and, and, and worship this God. Some people get to that point and they just say, I cannot live with you anymore. You are not the person I married, and I don't like it, because I want to keep doing those things, and you don't. And so Paul would say, in his pastoral advice, if your unbelieving spouse gets to that point, and they say, I just, I'm done, and says to let them leave. For the sake of peace, let them leave. And then you yourself would be free. This is many a people's story. In fact, this was Lee Strobel's story, uh, who was a journalist for the Washington Times back in the 70s. And Lee Strobel was an atheist, hardcore atheist, and he had it out for Christians. In fact, he had it out for Christians so much that as a journalist, he went around attempting to disprove Christianity. And so he went around and talked to different theologians and different pastors and leaders in all across the United States with the intention of disproving Christ. You know what happened? Well, in the midst of doing that, his wife became a born-again believer. She went to some kind of revival, became born again, and became a, a, a devout Christian. And so he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe it. He was so mad at her, and he had it in his heart to divorce her. But... In the process of his attempt to disprove Christianity, watching his wife become a lover of Christ, he himself 
ended up being convinced of Christ. And he ended up submitting and giving his life to Christ. And now he's a, a firm advocate for the faith. He's written a series of books, Case for Faith, Case for Christ. He even does like Case for Christmas, Case for Easter, stuff like that. But he, he approaches it as a journalist and he talks about how Christ is indeed real. Faith is indeed real. Um, beautiful thing. So that can happen. But sometimes people just leave and Paul says that's okay. So that's his pastoral advice. And I wanted to give you some of my own personal pastoral advice because this is not something that Paul mentions or that's really mentioned in the Bible at all. But I have found that it's also permissible to leave your spouse if there's abuse or danger. Now, again, you will not find a clear instance of abuse or endangerment clause for divorce in the Bible, but I believe it's there through inference throughout the scriptures. That God does not want you to be in a dangerous situation, locked into a relationship where you're being abused psychologically, physically, and in every kind of way. Um, I don't believe God would want you to stay under that. And so, for example, if I, I have had um, women come into my office who have told me about the abuses, abuses in their marriage, and they have told me about how their, their children have even been victims of the abuse as well. And in that case, how could I possibly, as a Christ follower, as a, as a God follower, look that woman in the eye and say, it doesn't say explicitly in the scripture. So that means you need to stay, stay in that situation. And your kids need to stay in that situation. That is just, that is not right. That is not the heart of Christ. And so therefore, I would counsel and have counseled women to leave that situation. To, to, and even if it's immediately, just get your stuff, get out, go to safety. And in those instances where that has been the counsel and they have done that, then it has been good and fruitful that they left. And we even discover that the spouse was up to a whole lot of no good, just really evil, evil stuff. And it's good that they got out when they did. And so, again, even though it's not in Scripture, I think the whole purpose of Paul saying, the Lord, not me, and I, not the Lord, again, giving pastoral counsel, is that God does give flexibility, especially in terms of marriage and divorce, where godly people who know the Word of God can counsel with an individual on a case-by-case -case situation, and they can counsel them to leave in that situation. And I think there's other cases like that, but again, it's because I've also had people come into my office say, my spouse is abusing me. And then when you ask follow-up questions, and you ask, well, how, how are they abusing you? Um, they say, well, 20 years ago, they called me a bad name. <sighs> my wife throws heads of cabbage at me when she's mad. Should I divorce her on those grounds? No, she's Italian. <laughs> I knew that when I married her. She's got the feisty Italian. She'll throw the food in the pasta at you. You get it. 
I mean, I knew what I was signing up for, okay? Same, same thing. We all, I mean, come on. What marriage doesn't get to the point where you're just so angry and you say something? You call your wife the B word. Or you call your husband an a-hole. I mean, what marriage really doesn't have that situation? Really, when you're just both so mad and you, you just say that thing that you regret, then you both go to your corner, you come back, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to... I mean, is, is that abuse or is that just common marital spat? And that's where it requires wisdom. And that's where it's good to, to involve counsel too. Because it's good to hear from somebody else, really, that's all they said to you? You should hear what my spouse said to me. So, but when it does come to a situation where there is indeed abuse, especially physical abuse, sexual abuse with the kids, all that stuff, and endangerment, then we need to be free as Christians to give that proper counsel to say, get out of the house now. Get out of the house now. Contact the authorities. Do what you, we, we need to do what we got to do. And to permit divorce in that situation. Now, uh, the thing I'll close on, and, and again, I thank you for your patience. I know I'm going really long, but I do want to cover this last section, then we'll close up together. Uh, before divorce is ever even considered or talked about, I think it's good to uh, first consider temporary separation. And that's even if you're, you've been considering divorce for a long time. If anybody came to me and was talking about different things other than uh, just being in danger or, or anything like that, I will always encourage temporary separation first. So in other words, move in with your mom or your dad. Make sure you tell your spouse exactly why you've reached that point in your marriage. And tell them that I don't want a divorce, but we need to separate. Because I want you to re recognize how serious I am about these problems. And it would do us some good to be separate for a while and to really just think and pray about things, to get things right with us individually without going through a divorce. And so I will always encourage that. And on the path to separation, what I'd encourage you with is if you're in a marriage right now that you're struggling with and you've even thought about divorce, you've thought about leaving, I'd encourage you immediately, pray. Pray and also recognize that Christians, we are kind of called to long-suffering. That even in marriage, there are, there are stretches within a marriage where you might be in agony. But God calls us to be long-suffering for one another. I mean, how many friends do we have that we're long-suffering for? They're just they're self-sabotaging, they're bad influence, but, but we love them. We love them and we stick with them because we love them and, and, we, and we, we're hoping that through our friendship that, that they'll change. We do that with our friends. Why not with our spouse? That when things aren't as great as you'd like it to be and you're, you're, often, you're even miserable, why are you not willing to be long-suffering with your spouse? Because I can tell you if you are, when you are, for the right reasons, what's on the other end of that long-suffering is glory is glory within your marriage. You, you will tap the most beautiful manna and honey within your marriage if you can be long-suffering through some of these things that you wrestle with. So prayer, long-suffering, I can't tell you how many times my wife has told me, I prayed 
for you in that regard for years. And I decided not to say anything. I just wanted to quietly pray for you about that issue. And then just somehow, some way through God, he, he, God ministers to me through her prayers. And I want to change on my own. And then when I come to her and say, I've, I've decided that here's the changes I'm going to make. And then she's like, I've been praying for you for years. So prayer is powerful. We are finding out in this church that God does indeed answer prayers. But also consider counseling and prayer with a trusted believer, a trusted fellow believer. And we all have that one friend who's a fellow believer who we know we can trust, we can confide in. We know who's going to tell us straight, give it to us straight. They're not just going to, you know, tickle our ears or give us bad unbiblical advice. If you have that friend, then it's good to confide in that friend and pray together about the situation you're in. And if you don't have that friend, it's my job to be a constant friend to all of you. Um, so I am, I'm available to pray with you. And that's another thing is, in addition to that even, counseling and prayer with church leaders, elders. We have a lot of good men and women in this church. Uh, very mature believers, those who have been married a long time or who have even divorced, who, who can offer you good wisdom and counsel in that regard. But then even through all that, if you get to the point where you're just really struggling, then consider temporary separation. And I say temporary separation because some people just like the idea of separating with the intention of divorcing. But that's not the biblical idea. The idea is if you separate, do it with the intention of reconciling down the road very soon. And so in our counseling, that's what I would advise for people. All right, well, I've kept you here long enough. And again, I thank you for your patience and attention. And I really hope that this helps you in your marriages or your future marriages uh, or even to reconcile your past. And another thing I would say to you is just simply this, that maybe you're thinking, oh, I've been divorced a couple times and you know, I, I wasn't a believer back then, but I'm a believer now and I'm, I'm with my wife. Does that mean I need to divorce my wife and go back with my first wife? No, but you know, Paul would say, no, love the spouse you're with now. Love them as Christ. Don't divorce them, don't separate from them, be long-suffering with them, love them, and do what's right from now on. And that's the beautiful thing about Christ, is that he forgives our sins, he wipes away our past, all the wrongs that we've done, and that from this moment on, we can go on living for him. And he, he's forgiving. He's gracious. So that's a commitment that I hope you all make in your hearts right now, right, right here today, is that from this moment on, I'm going to be the best husband I can be. I'm going to be the best wife I can be. I'm going to be the best single grandma that I can be. I'm going to be the best Christian from now on. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time we get together. It's precious. It's, it's meaningful. It's important. I thank you for your word which guides us in truth. Lord, I ask that you would help us all to live more like you in our decision making, in our relationships, 
the way we treat our wives and the way we treat our husbands. And Lord, help us to live with wisdom and to, to live biblically and to really understand that, that ultimately it's in your heart's desire for us to get along, to be reconciled, to exercise patience and forgiveness. Help us if we hold any kind of grudge against our spouse that even here, right here and now we'd forgive them and that we'd seek to be reconciled. We love you, Lord. Continue to guide us in truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed. Please join us for some soup.